we've marched on through those 67 years and we continue to evolve, expand um, uh, through technology, uh, through the better understanding of the business and through the people's love of our business. I mean, that's what's been amazing. The people love us. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? Ah, doing great. Now, for people who listen to this audio only, do they know that when we do the video, when you say fantastic, we both kind of lean back and then... <laughs> charge forward towards the camera <laughs> there is sort of a um a united i don't know you know it's like um uh synchronized swimming it's like synchronized yeah zooming. I don't know. synchronized zooming there you oh i like that i like yeah. that anyway subscribe or don't subscribe to our youtube channel if you're not already <laughs> but i have a question for you bring it matt you've been in the industry for uh for many years now you started out at the front line do you remember when you fell in love just with the business side of the industry, right? You had been a consumer for so long and then you realized, oh, look at all the things that just make it work and make it come together. I kind of, I so it may not be the business. Well, I guess it's part of the business, but it was the fun aspect of it, right? And I remember that my very first ride that I ever learned how to run was the Roundup at Canopy Lake Park. Um, and if you don't know what that ride does, it goes around, then it goes up. So it's very, very descriptive in the title. <laughs> Um, but I remember just being able to have fun with the, with the guests. And, you know, I'd worked at a supermarket before that I had mowed lawns. I actually did telemarketing for a couple of weeks. That was awful. Um, but I just remember, and this was in my first season, just really, you know, as people were coming onto the ride, you know, joking with them. And then, you know, when, when I was kind of giving my spiel, you know, having fun with them and yes, I had to clean up my share of um, code sevens or whatever you want to call them in the industry, right. At your place. But it was such a fun time and I got paid for it. So I think that was sort of the first thing that kind of got into my, into my blood. When you talk about what was the, what was the, thing that got me to, to kind of say, this is what I want to do in the industry. And then as I moved up through leadership roles, then it became, how can I make sure that other people are having fun? So it wasn't just the guests I was having fun with, but I was trying to make sure that my team was having fun so that they could, you know, make sure the guests were having fun. And then along the way, then you learn, oh, we got to do a budget, right? <laughs> and then there's other things that go into this, but it was all sort of centered around having fun. Yeah. So are you telling me that being a ride operator in an amusement park is more fun than being a telemarketer? One million percent. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I am. So what about you? Yeah, I, I distinctly remember 
uh, it was my first day of my first job in the industry. So uh, growing up, I had been a consumer of the product, right? Visiting many parks, riding roller coasters, whatever it was. And then uh, when I my first summer working at Cedar Point, I remember the night before my first day, I had this similar type of giddiness that I would have when I was visiting and it was the night before opening day, right? That's that's how it felt for me. So it was, it was almost the exact same feeling where I couldn't even sleep very well, but I wasn't exhausted or fatigued or anything. It was, it was just pure adrenaline. Well, I guess there was gonna be adrenaline later in the day, but just the idea of it was so exciting. I remember I woke up maybe about four or five o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And I didn't have to be at work until at least eight o'clock. And I realized, I said, oh, they told me yesterday that this key card, my ID, gets me into the park 24 hours a day. I've only been to the park during operating hours. So I, I thought it was a really cool opportunity where I, I got in the car, I drive in the, I got the best spot in the employee parking lot. And I went through security. Security had no questions of why I was there at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I walked around the park and it was, it was serene. It was surreal of doing that. It was my first day working in the industry. And I remember seeing, you know, maintenance doing some tweaks and inspections up here. I saw landscaping doing stuff up here. Someone was walking around over here. And it just made me realize there is so much that goes into making it look like you flip a switch and the park is open. And I think I really fell in love just with that concept. And then I wanted to dive deeper. And that's what ultimately led to me loving the, the business side of it, of what goes into making an experience look serendipitous to mm -hmm. guests who are coming to visit. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because our guest today is Dennis Spiegel. He's the founder and owner of International Theme Park Services Incorporated, a consulting firm focusing on feasibility, on master planning. And he shares his story of working as a ticket taker at Coney Island as his first job and how he fell in love with the business side of the industry. And I, I love hearing stories like that from you. I love talking about mine. I love hearing Dennis's of you know people who come into it. Maybe it is for a summer job. Maybe it's, well, they're hiring, so I'll go work there. And then you end up finding a career from it because like you said, there's there's the fun in it. Obviously there's the fun on, on the side of the guest, but there is the fun side of being in the industry as well. Well, and I think what you see, especially with Dennis's career, um, and we're so fortunate to have him back on the podcast because we've had it on we've had him on once before as we're um, kind of entering into the COVID uh, pandemic. But to hear him talk about, he started as a ticket taker, and very recently he was inducted to the IAPA Hall of Fame. I mean, talk about bookends of an amazing career, and he's still going. Let's not let's not you know um, you know put him you know at the retirement home just yet. He is still going. He's still vibrant. He's still very much a part of the industry. Um, but for anybody who takes that summer job, right, and starts to feel that feeling of, I think I might like to make this a career or I want to come back for another summer or, you know, this feels like, I'm just going to say it, it feels like I'm home, right? If you're feeling that way and you put your heart and soul into it and you find your niche in the, in the, in the industry, you could be, you know, on, on the verge of an amazing career. And, you know, we hear these stories all the time that people started on the front line and then, you know, they're now in very high level positions and it's just through 
hard work. It's through passion. It's through, you know, being curious and wanting to know more. And what I love hearing Dennis talk about is taking the opportunities that are right in front of him. You know, um, when he talks about kind of why he started ITPS, I won't go into it. I'll let him talk about it, but it's very, um, very organic the way it sort of came about, but it was a guy who loved what he did and just took advantage of the opportunities that were, were in front of him. So I think that there's a, a leadership lesson that's hidden in what you just said right there, because, you know, for those who, who are listening to this, who are, who are leaders, managers, in, anywhere in the industry, when working with your frontline staff, you could be asking yourself, could this ticket taker be inducted into the IAPA Hall of Fame one day? And I think that that can really uh, uh, influence the mindset of of perhaps how, how we treat and interact with our staff who might be 16 years old, 18 years old, and, and maybe they're not at that level of, of maturity yet or that expertise, but that there's there's an opportunity and even a responsibility to to foster that um, that mindset, perhaps. I love that. I love that leadership lesson. Always thinking about not the ticket taker who is 16 and that's all they're ever going to be, but what are they going to turn into later on in life, whether it's in this industry or not? Um, mm -hmm. And we hear all the time how the lessons that we learn in this industry, whether it's about customer service or conflict resolution or leadership or budgeting, whatever it happens to be, that we take those lessons and we either apply it in this industry or some other industry. But it's 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 a great training ground for people who, you know, are are going on to do bigger and better things no matter where they end up. For sure. Absolutely. So in this interview, we it's a wide ranging conversation. He's so fun to talk to. You mentioned, you know, we should have him on for a, a third time. I, I don't even think we got to half the questions that we put <laughs> together for him because we just came up with so much, you know, uh, so much so much more we wanted to ask him, we wanted to talk about. Uh, but we talk about we do talk about feasibility and master planning. So we're able to talk about what ITPS does. Uh, we asked Dennis for some future trends in the industry because we know he is a wealth of knowledge and he might as well have a crystal ball sitting on his desk because when we had him on for our in March of 2020, I think it was the first time I had really understood the concept of supply chain because he brought it up and oh man, was he right <laughs> with that prediction. Uh, and then, you know, we talk about just, he, he says the common denominator, he's been all over the world. And he said the common denominator of everyone is that we want to have fun. And so, yeah, we talk about business a lot, but then we bring it back to why are we in this business? Why does this business exist? And that goes right back to what first infected me was the fun aspect of it, right? I think we we want to make sure that our guests are having fun, but also our team members. So what do you say? Let's get to this interview with Dennis. Let's get to it. Hey, Dennis, welcome back to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are so excited to have you here today. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? It's uh, hope hope you're well, and it's great to be back with you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, probably more upbeat conversation than we had uh, last time, which was the beginning of the pandemic. And what right. can we expect all of this? And uh, really looking back on it, I think you actually uh, probably hit, hit the nail on the head through with, on, on a lot of your predictions as far as what was going to happen with the industry. So we wanted to have you back on to talk all about your expertise, your background, your history in the industry and everything about ITPS. So tell us, tell us, give us a, a quick background and overview your career? Well, started out a, a, as a ticket taker at Coney Island here in Cincinnati, the the predecessor to uh, Kings Island. I was at the, worked at the admissions gate from junior high, actually all the way through college. 
and it was a great summer job and I learned the business and you know, it's uh, the old saying, I'd rather be lucky than smart. I happen to be at the right place at the right time. <laughs> when Tap Broadcasting bought Coney Island, uh, they just bought Hanna-Barbera Studios, and they were looking for a way to exploit uh, the Hanna-Barbera characters, Yogi Bear, Fred Flintstone, Scooby-Doo, all of those great characters. And uh, it all came together through Coney Island. I was graduating from university at that point in time. I had uh, shown my interest in the amusement park industry at that point in time. There really weren't that many theme parks, just a couple. And uh, management saw that and uh, asked me to join the company and literally got on the rocket ship right before it blasted off. So that's kind of what projected and uh, took me uh, in the direction and landed me where I am today. So, Dennis, what was it about that time back then? You're working, you know, taking tickets and learning the business. What was it about the business that kind of got into your blood that you said, this is what I want to do? Well, it, it's funny, Matt, that where I worked at the front gate, it literally was an admission gate and everybody had to go through us. There were two sides to the the auto gate that people came through. So you knew everything that was going on. If it was a meeting, if it was uh, a, a celebrity coming in to perform, if a management had a situation, if there was an altercation, they had to tell me what was going on to get through. And I just kind of learned the business and saw, this is a pretty exciting business. I like this. I didn't know a lot about business when I was 13, 14, 15, but I started examining and watching. <clears throat> and I'd come in on my days off and I would poke around the park and I would learn and talk to everybody and find out what the business was about. On my off day, some of them, I'd go up to Cedar Point. And that was quite a different park at that time. And it was funny. <clears throat> I went up one Monday. Coney Island was closed on Mondays at that point in time, like a lot of parks were. Disney and Knott's Berry Farm were closed back then, believe it or not, on Mondays and Tuesdays. And um, I'm walking around Cedar Point. <clears throat> my brother was a pilot and he flew me up in his little Piper Cub. We're walking around and here I run into uh, Gary Walks, Ed McHale, and one of the other managers of Co Coney Island looking at Cedar Point and they go, what are you doing here? I've got a, a legal pad and I'm making notes. I said, well, I, it was a day off and I came up and wanted to enjoy the park and just kind of learn the business. And that was certainly uh the point of being lucky and smart <laughs> it worked out that way so yeah yeah so it was a lot of fun back then i i loved the business immediately and you could feel the heartbeat of it and uh, it just got in my blood really yeah and now you've been in the business for uh, for several decades now and uh, and itps uh, you know has, has certainly uh, played a big role just in in the industry itself can you tell us a little bit about just the origin story of of how itps came to be yeah, well, the true story is this. I, uh, uh, As you know, I worked at Coney Island. Then we built Kings Island. I was assistant uh, park manager at Coney Island the last two years of operation, which was really a wonderful experience. And then the first two years of Kings Island, I was assistant general manager and very active. Uh, really, at that point in time, uh, we would probably call that director of operations. So I had a lot of the departments underneath me, a lot of young people and some older than I as well. And uh, 
we we worked through all the issues of learning the business and opening a a, a theme park. And uh, after that, the management said, look, we want to grow and expand. We're going to send you down to Richmond, Virginia to build King's Dominion. I was 26 or seven years old, and uh, they gave me $60 million. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I look back on that. Uh, and I... I went down and uh, we started planning and, and building King's Dominion. Uh, and that was a tremendous experience from the ground up again after King's Island, uh, implementing the things we'd learned at King's Island. We did right and we did wrong. And uh, so I stayed there for the first nine years. I got it through construction in the first five years of operation. And then they shuffled the deck as corporations do. And moved the general managers around. They brought me back to corporate. I was vice president of operations. And <clears throat> when I came back, they weren't using me very well. It was a new team. And quite frankly, they were doing things that we had done five and six years before. And it was getting kind of boring. And um, I, I said, I'd really like to do something else. Well, that's when the international business was ex exploding. Disney had just opened uh, Tokyo, and it was so successful. And they said, well, we're getting a lot of calls. We want you to handle that from all over the world. So uh, <clears throat> I became vice president of international operations and development. So I was the guy who went out, did the feasibility studies, planted the flags. I was in China and Taiwan, Singapore, Europe, all over the world looking at markets. And I had a stack of projects jackets on my desk this thick and it was interesting um i always say taft was a a, a multifaceted company it was a movie company it was a radio a television company it was theme parks now uh, had real estate some other things and uh the theme parks were the newest uh part of that company and that really hasn't hadn't gelled quite well with them at that point in time and they were looking at how they invest their monies on an annual basis. And the parks were getting a lot of that, but they were also um, turning down some of these projects that I had on my desk. And uh, companies are coming to me, this is around 1980, 81. And they're saying, gosh, we'd like for you to consult or invest or uh, work with us in some way on retainers. And we'll pay you a quarter of a million dollars and we'll pay you this. And, Taft kind of was blowing that off. I always said they were taking the crumbs on the table and kind of putting them on the floor. Well, to the mouse on the floor, that looked like a banquet. And guess who the mouse was? <laughs> <laughs> so this is a great stepping stone. So, so a, a company had come to us from England that was really uh, well-connected, and they wanted to work with us. And they asked me to uh, come to work with them and help drive their project. And I was looking uh, at leaving at that point in time and starting a company. I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years. And uh, again, it was just the right place at the right time in the, in our industry. And I left the company, started working on this project in England and worked with these gentlemen for two or three years, which was my stepping stone to leave. I left a lot of security and a lot of perks uh, behind when I, when I pulled out, but I had a great a vision of what was coming. And I said to my associates, I said, 
you know, there's enough business out there to keep us busy for 20 years. So that was my window at that time. <laughs> well, it's been 40 years and we're, <laughs> we're, we're still doing it. So I left, started ITPS, expanded the, the physical space of the company uh, five times in the first two and a half, three years, uh, worked the, the way up to one at one point in time. We had about 80 people when we when we brought everybody in from all the facets just kept growing the business. And uh, I was uh, really then continuing my travel around the world, that international travel and uh, <clears throat> capitalizing on a lot of those uh, relationships that I had met. I'm meeting presidents, prime ministers, the robber barons of Australia. <laughs> I mean, one I'd be with Kerry Packer in Australia, and then I'd be with uh, the prime minister of Pakistan, and then I'd be with Margaret Thatcher's campaign manager, and I'd be with a movie star out in Hollywood. <laughs> it was it was crazy, really. There was uh, early in those early days, uh, just traveled so much. You probably have heard me say I've amassed over twelve million air miles. Uh, through the years, and uh, that's not glamorous. You can look at this face and see that <laughs> at this point in time. But uh, I was uh, in in a two week period. I was in the top ten most populated cities in the world: Tokyo, Moscow, Rio, all all over the world. So it was like that. It was always crisscrossing, and uh, it just it didn't stop because the industry was growing. And at that point in time, guys, there were only a couple of companies like mine there was uh leisure uh lark uh mike jenkins had a company uh that was doing international we'd be going in and out the same doors all the time of uh, bidding on projects but uh there really were only about two or three of us at that point in time so that kind of got me started and uh and launched itps and uh as you heard me say at iapa we've today we we've, we've worked on over 500 projects and more than 55 countries, and we have participated in some of the most successful uh, projects here in the United States and literally all over the globe in one facet or another. That is so fascinating, Dennis, to hear the evolution of not only your career, but you know how ITPS started and kind of how you saw that vision of what the business could become. Right. And um, how how you took advantage of those crumbs. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to go back just a little bit because I'm an Ohio guy. I grew up uh, real close to Geauga Lake, actually. I remember, uh, I remember you and, telling me. <laughs> yeah. And I wondered if I could get just your thoughts on, you know, you've got Kings Island, Coney Island, you've got Cedar Point, you've got Geauga Lake and SeaWorld. Like Ohio became this hotbed for a while of, of real, you know, Im immense entertainment. And then, of course, we all know the story about, you know, Geauga Lake going away and, and that type of thing. Yeah. I'm just curious about some of your thoughts on having that many, you know, incredible parks in a in a relatively small area i mean it's not like orlando where they're all right on top of each other but you know to think about ohio as like this entertainment capital yeah you know I'm, I'm just curious on some of your thoughts on that well it was fun because i remember all those parks and all i had to that matt matt there was idora park uh, toledo beach euclid beach um lasordsville lake uh there were there were probably six or seven more uh, little amusement parks throughout Ohio. And the reason, of course, that all happened was because uh, they were at the end of the trolley lines, and that's where people went to, from the metros 
to go out on the weekends and recreate, and they just grew into those kinds of recreational areas. Uh, Pennsylvania, same way. I'll look at all the parks that were in Pennsylvania up through New England, but uh, still in Pennsylvania, a lot of little places. So it was it was fun to be here, and I knew all those people. I, I knew the owners. Of, of course, I knew uh, the Cedar Point guys and knew the Jogger Lake guys when they took that over. And uh, actually was called on through the years to go back in and look at some of these other projects like Wyandotte Lake and, and Idora and some of those Euclid to see if they could be resurrected in some way. And uh, I would tell them, you know, I think the body's on the table, but I'm not sure the heart's beating. <laughs> so uh, time had, had eclipsed and the, and the big parts had, had come in. But it was a great time and it was an exciting uh, era. And I think probably <clears throat> uh, what I got to experience that a lot of young people like you guys didn't get to 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 uh, maybe experience so much because of evolution of, of the industry and time is I started with a small company like Coney Island, a private company, and was part of one of the biggest companies in Cincinnati, a public company. So I went from private to public, what an education that was, and got to see the and learn the differences in running a small little family uh, company and then running a huge uh, and being a part of a, of a big company. I was the youngest uh, uh, general manager in the industry at 28. I think Lee Darrow might have been, who was running World's Fund, might have been 29, might have been older than me. Uh and I was the youngest vice president in uh, in Tap Broadcasting Company, and so that was that was a great one. And there's one other experience I have to tell you about I had, which was just phenomenal, and that uh, that memory will never never leave me. And and uh, that uh, that part of the li my life was great uh, because of Hanna Barbera. Uh, we needed to integrate those into our parks and into our planning and into our design. And I became, for the theme park group, we had the broadcast group, the West Coast group, theme park, et cetera. And I became the liaison. So I had an office in Los Angeles at Hanna-Barbera Studios. And then I had one here in Cincinnati at uh, Kings Island and at Kings Dominion when I went down there. So I was the liaison. I'm going out to the the studio <clears throat> and I'm working with uh, Bill Hanna and, and Joe Barbera and their whole team uh, of people in all of their uh, ancillary uh, uh, departments. And Bill Hanna and I formed this relationship that lasted for 28 years till he passed away. Uh, he was like a father to me and a great friend. And we uh, not only worked together, but we recreated together and uh, actually was given the option early on to go to Hanna-Barbera and become Bill's assistant in the production side of Hanna-Barbera Studios. And um, that's when a lot of changes were happening at Taft. Uh, the new management was coming in. And the chairman of the board met with me and he said, you know, you can do what you want. And he said, you'd be good at it probably. He said, but uh, you can't be protected out there. You know this side of the business quite well. We're going to be growing. I'm going to let you make the decision, but if you want to go to Hanna-Barbera, <clears throat> we'll certainly support you. But if you want to stay here, 
uh, will certainly, uh, you know, you can continue on what you're doing. And, uh, and I, I decided to stay with theme parks, uh, section, but, uh, that was a great opportunity. I really never looked back and said, Oh, gee, what would my life have been if I'd gone that way? Uh, rather than staying with the theme parks. But I always thought that was an interesting opportunity. Yeah. So Dennis, I'd be curious to uh, to dive even deeper into maybe some of the, the nitty gritty details of ITPS and, and the projects that you do and uh, really in, in the way that you're able to serve the industry and largely through, you know, through feasibility studies and master planning and really yeah. how, how that all comes together. And wonder if you can give us maybe just, just an overview of those what that looks like of putting together those plans for, you know, parks that are either brand new, you know, just in, in concept phase or those who are looking to expand or another location as far as what, what the, the overall process looks like. Well, it's a, it's a process. And interestingly enough, Josh, we're using today the same basic foundation that Disney used when they built Disneyland in California. When you do a feasibility study, uh, they're more technologically advanced <clears throat> because we can access more things, et cetera. But the basics are ba are the same. I always say to a client when they come to us uh, with a, an idea, and this has been the same for 40 years, uh, the least fun we have at my company is doing a feasibility study, but it's the most important thing we do because it charts the course for the for the project, like you pointed out. It 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 charts the course from a planning standpoint, uh, which uh, launches the design, which we involve the sizing components, which generate the numbers for the financials and the marketing aspects, the safety aspects the maintenance aspects, the employee aspects, that all comes together in the feasibility study. <clears throat> and we've always been fortunate because all of the people who work with IPPS have worked in parks. We don't have any outsiders. They're all they're all trench types of people. They were they were there. So it's not an ivory tower look at a park. So you take that feasibility study and we did that for years. We didn't get into the design part of it uh, initially. We just did the pre-opening operations uh, planning aspect, which we can I'll talk about in a second. And uh, as we got more involved and things started to grow and we saw what services people needed, uh, we decided to expand our design and we did bring in our team of designers then. And we had one whole floor of designers <clears throat> at ITPS. So what did we do? <clears throat> if we were contracted and the people liked the feasibility study, that automatically gave us the opportunity to feed that into the design process so we could get the jump on the budget and on the timing from the standpoint of feeding the information into the process as we were generating it. And it really started to work and started to gel and allowed us to uh, expedite studies. Uh, average study takes about 10 to 12 weeks to do. We could, in in a lot of cases, get them done in eight to 10 weeks. Uh, that 
would give the client the opportunity to take that study to the government, to their investors, the banks, whomever, sponsors, and show it to them and get started. And then we started saying, well, let, let us do the dog and pony show for you, the pretty pictures and all the renderings. And we brought our team in. We worked with, uh, we developed a network in the industry that we worked with and still work with uh, quite a few of them. Uh, to help us on design if we didn't have the depth that we needed. And most importantly, I think, Josh, in your question, that process of feasibility feeds the design, pro the master planning, design, conceptual development, and <clears throat> pre-opening operations, which we were the primo stars uh, in the industry doing that. That was literally all of the programmatic and systematic work that, had to be done for a park. And what we would do is we would juxtapose the pre-opening ops work with the construction. And when we would sit down with the client and say, now look, uh, construction and, and the master planning design is one thing, but you got to have the pre-opening. I mean, this is what brings the brick, bricks and mortar to life. They get it. And we'd say, and this doesn't happen uh, in a two or three month. This is an 18 month typical period when you're designing. So we would start that process very early on. And that went all the way through training uh, the individuals, training on site, uh, training, uh, producing all the manuals. And as I said, systems and programmatic work. Um, so it, it, it was a lineal process. Uh, one other thing, we've been through some ups and downs like roller coasters uh, take us on rides in our industry. And when we had some recessions and turndowns and things started to slow down, uh, one time uh, in a period, the banks started coming to me and they'd say, look, we're, we're working with a group and they've got this project and we're not sure they can uh, get through this, this difficult period, uh, economic period. Uh, can you help them? So we went in and we started working with companies, existing smaller, older parks, family parks, to help them uh, get through periods. Uh, some of them did, some of them didn't make it. And then we became caretakers. Well, for the ones who didn't make it, the banks came to me. And this is what really blasted a, a, a whole new section of business for us. They said, can you help us sell these? So I started uh, this network of selling. We've done about $800 million in park sales, purchase and sales, M&A work. And as you know, most recently, Adventureland out in um, Iowa for Parques Reanutos. We've, we've done uh, about 45 projects buying and selling through the years. So when somebody's looking to buy or sell or they want to know what's going on in the industry in that space, they come to me. So um, I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but it was kind of a circuitous path. Yeah. And some doors opened up, uh, uh, new projects, some closed uh, things for us. But uh, we've always tried to be at that forefront and look and see what's what's needed in the industry and then jump into that uh, that boat. Yeah. 
Well, Dennis, speaking of what's needed in this industry and what's maybe coming up in the industry at the time of this recording, we've all just come back from the IAPA conference in Orlando uh, in November of 2022. And I'm curious from your standpoint, someone who has seen so much in the industry, what were your, some of your takeaways from that expo in terms of like what you're seeing uh, coming up in the industry or what people and operators need to be watching out for? Well, we... Uh... I mean, COVID changed the world and it certainly changed our industry and the technological advances, Matt, that we've seen uh, evolve and accelerate have been incredible. I was doing an investment uh, call yesterday for a large group uh, on online and we, somebody asked about the per capita spend. Why did it move so uh, greatly uh, uh, during uh, the last couple of years? Well, it was a couple of things, and I'll I'll hit it real quick. One was when people came back in 2021, there was that pent-up demand. They were spending like drunken sailors, as we all know, and we saw per capita spending rise from 11% to 36%. And that, that was from Disney down to the smallest <clears throat> mom and pop park. And that held through 21 and carried through 22 until we were uh, getting into the third quarter when we started feeling some of this recession and, and inflation and, and economic issues that we're dealing with right now. Um, but what happened why else was that generated? They parks were able one to raise prices. There was no price pushback in 2021. You could we had a thousand dollar ticket, and somebody would have bought it, and a fifty dollar coke, and somebody said, "I'll take it." It was crazy, and what what happened was prices were raised, no pushback, and then COVID pushed the touchless, cashless. Uh, aspect of our business greater than we'd ever seen. Everybody jumped into that and it forced them because we didn't know, are people going to want to stand and touch money and walk up to a counter and put their hands on it? Remember, we're disinfecting and sanitizing lap bars and countertops and toilet seats and turnstiles. And it forced the industry to move in that direction. Well, that has that was one of the few good things that came out of COVID for the industry. And it's something that's uh, going to be with us. And we'll, those per caps are going to stay up because of that touchless, cashless technology. So uh, looking around the floor in the IAPA this year, it's always, you know, it's a hoot uh, to, to do it. And uh, it was amazing to see the amount of technology on the floor, the new things coming, not only from a standpoint of robotics and ways to improve service, but from the entertainment aspect, from the shows and the the cinema and that aspect of it. Um, greatest thing, of course, for all of us, uh, I'm sure you guys feel the same way, was just to see each other face to face again, not be Zooming. And it was, uh, Zoom has been wonderful for all of us. I don't know how we would have gotten through the last few years without it. Uh, but to be there and have a drink with somebody and shake a hand and sit in a booth, that that was phenomenal. So uh, people were happy. It was it was a happy show. Uh, vendors were happy. I talked to, to a lot of them and they were buying. So that was good. People getting back in the queue line. 
So it was, it was good from all of those aspects. And, um, uh, it's just amazing how great that show has become from when I was chairman 33 years ago. Yeah. Dennis, do you think there's a way to bottle up that pent up demand so that it, it's able to, it's a continue flowing, even as you know the industry is uh, has fully or at least nearly fully reopened. I, I remember just in the early days of the pandemic, we talked about pent up demand, and it almost sounded as much of a, a hope and a wish as it was a prediction. And then obviously it was it was there, uh, but the reason the pent up demand was there was because because everything was closed, because everyone was sitting at home saying, I wish I could go ride a roller coaster. I wish I could go to the movies. I wish I could go out to dinner, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but it, now that everything is reopening again, it's almost as if uh, can we, we can easily just take for granted that, yeah. that the park is there, the park is open just as it was yeah. prior to COVID. So how, you know, how do we keep the pent-up demand going even without taking it away for an extended period of time? Well, uh, that's a that's a big question, but an important question that everybody's looking at, Josh, in the industry. And I talk to everybody. Uh, it that that question involves uh, social marketing. It involves how do we price in the future. It involves what type of ancillary uh, operations do we put into play. Uh, like Cedar Fair is doing with their campgrounds or glamping, things like that have been very successful where they've done it. Um, conversely, you look at a situation for Six Flags right now, they're going through one of their most uh, difficult periods the company has ever experienced. And it's such a, so sad uh, to see this happen. And when you see a company like that uh, under new management, um, doing things that, in a time that they may not understand exactly the industry they're coming into and then the conditions that they're working under with these uh, economic times and lose 4 million people in a quarter like they did in uh, in uh, this year, uh, you've got to manage it is the answer to your question. You're always sitting at the control panel dialing the dials. You know, what do I have to do? And uh, we never have to, we never have to, or can lose sight of the basics of our business, the fundamentals. And um, people come there for a good price value <clears throat> relationship. And I've always told uh, the investment community: if you look at the theme park industry, I don't care what the ticket was. It was when we opened Kings Island. I'll ask people: I'll say today, how much was it uh, to get in Kings Island when they, we opened it? And they'll go uh, twenty dollars. I go five ninety five. Disney was only about seven dollars at that time, <laughs> and they go what? So you look at it today, uh, and you look at the tickets, and you look at the different sector sectors. But if you if you look at it and still divide it out by the length of time staying, and the value, and on an hourly basis, and you compare it to concerts and sporting events, uh, a movie. You pay $12, $15 to go to a movie for 90 minutes. Uh, you you pay, you can pay, well, Taylor Swift ticket may not be a good idea. <laughs> but uh, but a, a concert could be 200, 300 bucks. Uh, 
a sporting event, a, 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 a pro football game uh, could be, you know, several hundred. They are. So, and you're only there for two hours, but a theme park visit is typically six to seven hours. So good price value relationship, managing those kind of things and never forgetting it. Um, I, I told this investment group yesterday, uh, and you've heard me say this forever. Our business lives on repeat visitation and repeat visitation is driven by CapEx and CapEx is new products, new ideas, the things we see on the floor mat at IAPA, buying those and putting them in the park. And uh, you have to continue that kind of investment. I always tell a new client coming to me, uh, if you want to sit at this poker table, the ante's big. You got to have a lot of chips. You just don't put a few out there because it's an expensive business to be in. You know, a roller coaster can be from, you know, 15 to $35 million, depending on what you want to do. And that'll give you a good coaster. But when you think back to we built Kings Island for $35 million and Orion cost $35 million when they opened it in 20, uh, things have changed a lot. So it, it it's managing those things. It's uh, keeping... Uh, in check with the customer and knowing what's going on out there. And the biggest, uh, one of the biggest issues we have to deal with is our maturity. We're a, we're a mature industry. Now we're 67 years old and we mind these markets that we're in. Uh, there's a major theme park within two and a half hour drive of every major Metro in the United States and some multiple, as you know, and uh, <clears throat> we keep mining the ore. You have to manage the attrition, hold that here. And you have to keep it with your season pass holders. You've got to get them back every year, give them new, new things to make them want to come back product and premium ideas. So uh, all of those things come into play. It's, it, it's a, it's a science in a sense. <laughs> I think it's a science in a big sense, um, but there's there's also art to it, right? Like if you think about what we do, we're selling fun. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk maybe on that side of things, you know, how important it is that we're we're getting the word out there about truly what it is that we're selling, which are memories and fun and, you know, together yeah. time. You know, yes, Orion is a great ride. I wrote it this summer. I love it. Um, but I also had a really good time hanging out with my friends. So I think there's a balance there of the hardware and then the kind of those, those softer experiences. Well, there is. And uh, I think probably the one, one of the things that I've learned early on in the history of, of my uh, career is that particularly when I started traveling internationally, like I, like I was the one common denominator I found among people all over the world is they all want to have fun. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I don't give a damn who you are, how poor you are, how rich you are, where you are, you want to have fun. And uh, if you look at our industry and how it marched around the world, you see that these the fun developed in a lot of places. You take, uh, let's take Asia for a minute. Let's take Japan and Korea. Um, after wars, when Japan, after World War II, uh, it was about 30 years before you really saw any development for fun because they were going through a rebuilding. And it was that pent up, let's have some fun now. 
Same thing in uh, Korea after the Korean War. Then you saw Everland and Lottie World and all of these parks built. Same thing over in Europe when that happened. You saw uh, the after World War II, you saw the parks starting to develop around the uh, uh, European uh, major cities. So that common denominator is always there. We are probably still one of the safest places to be on the planet. We are the pre premia uh, wholesome family entertainment fun aspect. And so we do make memories. And, you know, you've heard me say at the end of my podcast, uh, we don't, uh, we don't put smoke in the skies. We don't pollute the rivers. We, what we do is put smiles on people's faces and and generate memories that last a lifetime. And that's what we have always done. And uh, you know, Disney's been the master of that uh, forever from from literally a day two after they got through black, black <laughs> money. <laughs> but uh, and and we continue to do that, and and that's what we sell. And what's really interesting, we're doing a study right now for a client and we're looking at Gen Z and Gen A. And the great thing for our industry is both of those uh, demos like our industry and our users. So we have people coming through. There was a period when we had millennials and some of uh, some of the other gens, gen generations that kind of faltered a little bit and held back. We're doing some other things, but the ones coming up now, they like our industry, so we need to capitalize on that. Yeah. So there was one thing you mentioned a couple of minutes ago real quickly that I would love to come back to, and you said that the industry is mature, and then you said it's 67 years old, which doing the math would bring us to 1955, which means that the significance of Disneyland obviously cannot yeah. be understated. But why do you see that as, as the uh, beginning of the industry or the age well, of the industry? Well, it, it, you know, it, and again, I was so lucky to be at Coney Island because Walt Disney and, and the owner of, uh, of Coney Island, Ed Schott and Ralph Fox, became great friends because Walt Disney went around to these older amusement parks. There were no theme parks, right? He went to Pontchartrain Beach. He went to Riverside. He came to Coney Island many times. And uh, we, he was looking for advice and looking for ideas and on Disneyland. There were some who poo-pooed the idea and said, uh, you know, this isn't a good idea. This thing will never work. And there were some like the owner of Coney Island who said, I like this. This is pretty great. And I have a letter I'm going to send you guys that was from the owner of Coney Island to her daughter when she was out at the Walt Disney opening, having dinner at Walt Disney's house with Red Skelton and all these people. And she says in this letter, you know, this isn't like anything we've ever seen before. This is going to really change the industry. Now, this was 1955, and we have this letter. It's amazing. Uh, but that, Josh, that that we've marched on through those 67 years, and we've continued to evolve, expand, um, uh, through technology, uh, through the better understanding of the business, and through the people's love of our business. I mean, that's what's been amazing. The people love us. 
They love our they love our industry. And uh, as long as we continue to give them these great experiences, they they will come and they will spend. So um, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but that 67 years has gone by very quickly. And we, and we are mature because we penetrated these markets deeply. So we just have to keep mining them. And population isn't uh, booming like it was during the baby boomer period, et cetera. So. You know, I love hearing you talk about how, you know, people love our industry. And I see that, you know, when I when I go visit places as well. Um, but also looking on the other side, we also have to keep, I guess, mining and cultivating the staff that is going to take care of our industry for years and years to come. So what advice or guidance do you have for people that are kind of coming up through the industry now um, so that they can be successful? Well, uh, you've got fellows like Evan Ponstengel, who wrote that wonderful book about Kings Island, started writing this book when he was 15, finished it when he was 17, published it. And I'm telling you guys, if you haven't read it, read it. It is accurate, not only chronologically, but it, it just takes you through the, the true history of that, that part. Uh, John Barry, uh, his father, Barry Hill, is a publisher and put out some uh, phenomenal information on uh, uh, the the industry. And I tell those young guys when they when they call me, I say, get a job in a park, start in a park and and get the roots <laughs> and that be seen like I was and and hundreds of other people Jane Coopers and you name them they all came up the same way uh, Al Weber's uh, Keith James uh, we all you know came out of the roots of the of the park business so get a job in a park find out if you like it the one thing you'll find out very quickly it's kind of like being in show business uh, there's uh, no gray area you either love it or you hate it <laughs> You don't tolerate it, so you gotta you gotta work at it and find out if you if you like it and find out what area you like because there's there you know operating a theme park and building a park. Josh, back to your early question, it's like building a city. We have our own fire departments, uh, security. We have our own restaurants. We have our own merchandise. We have our own sanitation and sewage and everything. There's a lot engineering rides and operate. There's a lot of places that young people can get. But you know what, Matt? <clears throat> I think a couple of uh, probably the biggest uh, issue I think facing us for the next few years is a continuation of the labor shortage. Hmm. And it has impacted not only the theme park business, but look at the restaurant hospitality business in general. And uh, we did a study for a client uh, about eight or nine months ago. And they said, where are these people going? What, what are they doing? Uh, unemployment's low. <clears throat> Job uh, opportunities are high. Where, what are they doing? And we found out, uh, you know what they're doing? Uber, DoorDash, Grubhub. And what they, I ran into one of these kids, young, I say kids, he's probably 19, 20. And I hadn't seen him in a while. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm my own boss. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm an Uber driver. He said, I make, and this is what he told me. I make my own schedule, set my own hours. He said, I, I can work as much as I want, make as much as I want. And he said, and then I can take off a few days and go do this. And then I'm okay for a while. And then I come back and do it again. So what I think has happened is, as a result of COVID, we have created this culture that's going to be with us. This isn't going to go away. This is, It's expanding more now than it probably ever has. 
And so we're seeing more people fall into that. When they do that, we lose them in our industry. And it takes a lot of people to run a theme park. And we have to figure out ways to get them again at that young area. When we opened Kings Island, <clears throat> we had people standing from the personnel building all the way through the parking lot out to 71 waiting. For every 10 people we interviewed, we hired one. Today, if somebody crawls to a door, you, you hire them pretty much. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. So that's a big problem. The industry has to attack it. IAPA needs to attack that and figure out ways to do it. They need a ad hoc task force that comes in and says, how do we how do we mine these young people? Because they're the the power that generates the the parks. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could just continue on on this topic and this conversation for, for quite a long time and uh, and probably come up with a lot of ideas and suggestions, but we are running really low on, on time here. Uh, but there is one thing that I, I want to make sure that we don't overlook in this interview, and that is that you were just recently inducted into the IAPA Hall of Fame, the highest award and honor in the association, really in the industry. Uh, what's that like? Well, it's... Uh... I make fun of a lot of things <laughs> and always have. Uh, that's been my, my kind of my style, but uh, that was truly an honor and very humbling as, as you've heard others say uh, to be brought into that August body uh, with Walt Disney and Milton Hershey and uh, Buzz Price. And you know, it goes on and uh, Gustav Eiffel and uh, Ferris and people like that, uh, P.T. Barnum. Uh, it, it it is a great Josh uh, feeling. Uh, it was very very humbling and really quite an honor. And I'm I was very appreciative uh, that they bestowed that and uh, considered me to for induction. And uh, I don't take it lightly. I mean, I I, I treasure it. I've always been very selfish about our industry, guys. Who comes into it? How, how and how we guide and work our industry, uh, because we're such a neat, wonderful industry. If if people come in with not the right motives, I don't like that uh, because it it is such a great industry, and I want people to come in. We want successes, not failures, and that's kind of always been my motto. So. Uh, very humbling and, a, and and quite an honor. I don't know how to say it other than that. Yeah. Well, Dennis, it's it's uh, incredibly well-deserved. I remember even, you know, starting off in this industry, hearing about you and ITPS. So, uh, you know, we've talked a, a little bit about how long you've been in the industry, but uh, very, very well-deserved. And it's truly been an honor to have you on the Attraction Pros podcast for the second time. Maybe we'll make it a, a, a three-peat, um, you know, in a year or so. Uh, but Dennis, this has been wonderful. And if people wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about ITPS, where would you send them? I would send them to www.interthemepark.com, uh, I-N-T-E-R-T-H-E-M-E-P-A-R-K.com. -E -E uh, and uh, they can contact us that way. And uh, uh, we like to help people. I've got a meeting coming up in the next couple of days with one of the young people you talked about wanting to get in the business uh, that that's always been fun for me. So anybody can call me or contact me anytime. Feel free. 
Excellent. Well, Dennis, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. We're so glad we had the opportunity to chat with you. For everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.